You're a marketer, not a lawyer. But your organization may count on you to identify problematic advertising practices. Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. And I'm Lane Gordon. We're partners in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Law Group. Together, we're asking our Venable colleagues questions that are designed to help you navigate the increasingly complex world of ad law. Each week, we'll dive into a new issue, from negative option marketing to copyright protection to influencer endorsements. Our goal is to give you something to take away from each episode that will help fill your advertising law toolkit. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. Hi, I'm Shaheen Rothermel, a partner in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Group. The Food and Drug Administration regulates the marketing of a lot of things we use every day. Dietary supplements, over-the-counter drugs, cosmetics, medical devices, infant formula, pet foods and supplements, and even e-cigarettes. Those regulations are a frequent source of trouble for marketers. Today I'm here with Venable partner Todd Harrison, co-chair of our firm's FDA group. Todd is here to discuss marketing FDA-regulated products. Todd, welcome. Hi, Shaheen. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be here with you. So let's kick it off. What are some examples of the confusion that marketers can face when it comes to FDA regulations? Uh, I think a lot of the confusion is they don't understand the pro- different product categories. They have each have their own rules. So what happens oftentimes is that they think that, well, I have a study that shows that it helps with arthritis, therefore I can say arthritis, and that's not how it works. The first thing that marketers always have to pay attention to is what category are you? Are you a drug? If you're a drug, are you a prescription drug or OTC drug? Are you a supplement? All these things will influence on what you can say and cannot say. With more rules around prescription drugs, OTC drugs, and medical devices. Where the area gets really fuzzy is really when you start getting into food, dietary supplements, and cosmetic products. Because there's oftentimes a very fine line between what is a permissible structure function claim for a supplement, but is not a permissible structure function claim for a cosmetic because it turns it into a drug. So these are the things that companies are grappling with all the time. But I think what we see most often is that one, People think they can say whatever they want if they have a study. Two, oh, we just use testimonials instead as thinking that's some type of workaround of FDA's rules. Or three, they just don't care. No, I hear you on that one, Todd. So when you say they use testimonials instead, what do you mean by that? You mean that people think that testimonials on their own are substantiation? That's who they think testimonials don't require substantiation other than it has to be a truthful statement by the by the person giving it, but when you try to explain to them, there's no there's no personal use exception to whether it's a drug claim or a disease claim or whether ingredient is substantiated. If you make a claim in a testimonial, that claim has to be one. If it's a supplement or food, it has to be a structure function claim. If it's a cosmetic claim, it has to be about beauty. And if it's a, and it, from a substantiation point of view, it has to be substantiated by the science. If none of those exist, then you have an issue. And that's why I think a lot of people don't understand. They just think, oh, personal use, they can say whatever they want. No, you can't. Anytime you use things as a marketing tool, 
you are you have to follow the rules. And we get in these issues, questions that we get all the time is, well, how do I tell people about the science? And there are ways of trying to present the science, but they all have their risks involved in there. And so like the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act says that you could create a, you can have third-party literature and third-party literature, as long as it doesn't reference a particular product, it could reference a disease claim, for instance. But the problem is if you have a microsite and it's all about ashwagandha, for instance, and that's all that's sold on that product, and then you have a bunch of disease states, disease studies on there, that doesn't pass the laugh test. It really comes that you, is do you have a large website with large amount of information where you have a lot of protected content and non-protected content. Uh, and I think that is the thing that we grapple the most with our clients. I, I hear you, Todd, on that one. And you raised a point that a lot of clients always ask us, which is, I have a dietary supplement that I want to market. And all of the studies to substantiate the effects of the dietary supplement are done in a population that has some sort of disease. But on the other hand, the FDA says that if I have a dietary supplement, I can't make a claim about that product's ability to treat, prevent, mitigate the conditions associated with a disease. One could argue that the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, by definition, makes you make false claims because you're stuck with structure function claims rather than if it's, for instance, if I were to do a clinical study on people with healthy knees. Well, guess what? Yeah. I'm not going to get yeah. statistical significance between placebo because there's nothing wrong with the knees. It, you could potentially do a five-year study to look at people over that five-year time, but no supplement company is going to do that, especially for an ingredient that's not patented. So the law itself has created issues, and I've always been a big, I've always said it's time for D-Shape 2.0 and start allowing what I would call over-the-counter drug claims for dietary supplements because most people use herbal ingredients not because they're healthy, because they have something wrong with them. And, but yet our laws are set up in a manner that they arguably would be deceptive. The courts have somewhat saved companies in some instances, and at least saying that you can rely on studies to support claims if they're in a disease population, as long as you could extrapolate from those studies, and it's appropriate to extrapolate those from those studies. I think another issue you have, especially on the cosmetic side, is that you can't make structural function claims for for. Cosmetics. So let's put aside the stupidity of that law as well, because it <laughs> helps reduce the appearance of fine lines of wrinkles. Really, how is that not a structure function claim? But FDA treats it as not. So you, we get into this wordsmithing, and we're constantly wordsmithing. If we actually had laws that made sense, it would make it a lot easier. It's a bit of form over substance, yeah. right? It is. I've always described the difference between FDA and FTC as one's matter is form, the other one's substance. FDA is rarely, I can think of one time that I've seen FDA actually question substantiation. Generally speaking, FDA is going to question you on if it's a cosmetic product, a supplement, or food. They're going to question on whether it's an appropriate structure function claim or appropriate cosmetic claim as opposed to 
where's your substantiation? Where on the flip side, we know that Federal Trade Commission, while disease claims tend to get their attention, they're more concerned about whether it is inappropriate, whether it's appropriately substantiated. So arguably, you could violate the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, but not violate the Federal Trade Commission Act because you mentioned a disease, but if you can substantiate it, mm-hmm. the FTC is going to have a hard time arguing that it's an impermissible claim. It's almost the, the opposite yeah. is right, too, because yeah. if the FDA says that you have to, that that you can't make disease claims, but then your substantiation is on a disease population, then you're really in a tricky situation where you have to be able to extrapolate maybe a, a study that was done yeah. on the outskirts of healthy and then make a claim that it helps healthy people. We see that all the time. And there's only really a couple areas that you could test cognitive ability and, and increase in cognitive ability and memory because there's a far range of things of whether that's really dementia or not, or is it just simple age-related mental decline? Because I'm 61 years old. Heck, I'm okay. I remember my kids' names sometimes. <laughs> it, it is you, know, you. It's easier to do a study on the cognitive battery of, of tests than it is to do a study on joint health because it, most people, if they don't have unhealthy joints, you not going to get the outcomes you want. Now, you there are things you could look at, like you could look at joint pain associated with working out. That's not a disease claim. So you could look at those type of endpoints. But again, does that extrapolate to help support healthy joints or not? Who knows? Who knows? And, and so we, we've just created this really bad situation. I've said it for a long time, and I mentioned earlier, the law needs to be updated. You're only allowed to make structure function claims when we know why everybody uses these products. Mm-hmm. And it's important that people get in the right information. So you, you get into the idea, well, within the supplement industry, you have those products that are marketed through healthcare practitioners and physicians and those that are not. So if a, if a health tech practitioner is looking to because FDA doesn't control the practice of medicine. So I'm a physician. I want to give somebody glucosamine for their arthritis and tell them to take it. There's nothing FDA can do about it. That's the practice of medicine. But the problem is where they're getting their information from. If people aren't allowed to get this information, then we now have doctors prescribing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. The problem is that but the government wants to say that, oh, we have experts. No, experts are never always right. Just because you're a physician doesn't mean you're an expert in everything. Right. And so we have to figure out better ways to get information to these individuals and also the consuming product. I appreciate we don't want people taking supplements and homeopathic drugs for cancer. I get it. And we're not talking about those things. We're talking about certain things that are just a reality. Of course, maybe it should be that we should have done what an FDA did when they decided that menopause and PMS was a disease claim. <laughs> they withdrew that pretty quickly, that idea. But yet there are companies that are trying to still assert that those are disease claims. They're not disease claims. They're natural states. They're all natural states. So if it, I'd like to talk a little bit about what somebody who is launching a product and they don't even know what what are the considerations there. So I've got a product. I don't even know 
if it if it is FDA regulated, have you had that happen where somebody comes to you and they, they didn't even realize that it was an FDA regulated product? Uh, I've had that happen to me. I've had people say, well, how is that regulated by FDA? What do you say? <laughs> yeah, I say, well, you said that it cures something. It therefore was regulated by FDA. If you pretty much ingest it, it's regulated by FDA. If you say something provides transdermal benefits that, you know, you get the helps you lose weight by slapping a patch on. Well, that's a drug that's regulated by FDA. Believe it or not, your TV set is actually regulated by FDA. Well, you learn something new every yeah. day, Todd. Yeah. What, what, how, how does FDA <laughs> regulate that? The, the, because FDA is for radiological health. So they have to they have specs out there. I think the first mistake that people make is, number one, they don't know what they have. On the supplement side, they'll come to us with a formulation. And I can look at the formulation and say, you have all the right stuff, but none of it's at the right levels. So they go to contract manufacturers out there. Oh, here's a off the thing shelf and look at it. And you look at it and you're like, you have the right ingredients, but none of them, nothing is in there at a dose level that would provide any benefit. It's all in there at pixie dust level. Mm-hmm. Pixie dust means it's not providing you any benefits. So I think that's the first mistake, not knowing what you have and how you regulate it. Same thing on the cosmetic side. Is this an ingredient that is appropriate? Is that an ingredient the FDA would agree that you can put into your product? They don't ask that question. First, they'll go ahead and they formulate things, and then they all of a sudden are three months away. They're now a month away from launch, and they send the things over to an attorney. And then the attorney goes, like, oh, time out here. We have some issues. And they look at you like, are you crazy? But the fact matter is you got to do your homework up front. One of our former colleagues once said, who used to represent FDA when he's at, over at DOJ, it's one of the most maddening agencies that you can deal with because you know, they, they will take five years to make a decision on whether to pursue something in a case. But so we'll take the perfect example. Of this is, is, is CBD. In 2015, FDA sent a bunch of warning letters on CBD. They mentioned in that warning letter that we don't believe that this is an appropriate, that this can be marketed as a dietary supplement. But the, the companies changed the claims in, from impermissible disease claims to structure function claims. FDA didn't do anything. A billion dollars later, we still have FDA's formal position that CBD is an unapproved new drug, can't be marketed in a dietary supplement, but yeah, everybody in the industry markets it. Well, they're doing it. They're doing it. Mm-hmm. They're doing yep. it. You're right. They're doing it. And I explain it. It's like playing a Russian roulette with a thousand barrel gun. You don't know who's going to get shot. And just because you're the one who gets shot doesn't mean that you, you can argue, well, they didn't shoot them over there. We even take a look at the FTC 700 warning letters they sent out. Right. They actually sent it to probably the more reputable companies. The worst companies in the supplement industry and the health industry, health product industry were not on that list, which made no sense whatsoever. But maybe they don't know who the worst players are, or they don't want to send a letter to Cyprus. That's, <laughs> that's, it's a good point. What are all the ways that an, a warning letter can be resolved? One resolved favorably or unfavorable? What can happen if I get a warning letter? So what can happen when you get a warning letter? You will respond to that warning letter. You could ignore it and just keep on going. To your detriment. And <laughs> not do anything. That never generally ends very well for the companies. FDA generally doesn't like to be ignored. 
The, the other way to respond to it is to sit down and take a look at it. And what do you think FDA's right about? What do they think you're, they're wrong about? And you try to have a discussion with FDA to resolve it. Ultimately, you have to get to a, to a place where when you're responding to a warning letter that you're comfortable that FDA is not going to take it any further, even if you didn't make all the changes they would want you to do. And there's many different reasons. There's a lot of structural fracture claims that are in a gray area. Could go either way, depending on the court. And so if things go well, you get a closeout letter. Yeah. Well, now we get to the closeout letter. Be careful what you ask for because you may not get it. And, and this is something that I've uh, tried to explain to clients. Clients always ignore the ending of a warning letter that says that this is only basically representative of the violations that we have seen. Right. People just want to say, well, those are, well, we fixed all the specific examples. And I said, but you haven't fixed other things on the website. And you want to close that letter. Yes. I go, understand, if you do it this way, FDA is not going to close it out and don't come back with more questions. Oh, no, no, no. We fixed what they told them when we did. What they, they said, I go, those are just representative. I go, you have bigger issues on your website as well. So I had one client that insisted at one time they wanted a closeout letter. So I said, okay. So we wrote and we asked for a closeout letter. It took us three months back and forth with the FDA because FDA would go back to the website and find another disease claim. Just like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah, yeah. because FDA is not going to close out a warning letter if there's anything in there that is a potential disease claim. The other issue is, is that, is it a gray area claim? Let's just say supports normal blood glucose levels. FDA would say that's an implied, because you didn't say already in the normal range, that that's a, that's a disease claim. My position is not. I'm never going to get a closeout letter over that. FDA is not going to sue my client over that. But I'm not going to get a closeout letter either. Because FDA is not going to say that that's a permissible claim, especially when they're on the record saying it's not. So closeout letters, you have to make sure that everything is correct on your website because FDA actually does go back and look to see not just the changes they expect you to do it, but did you actually understand the spirit of the warning letter? When you go through a warning letter, you can always find what triggers it, especially on claims. And so sometimes associates will, young associates will go, well, that's a, this thing, that's a disease claim that had nothing to do with that claim. This is the claim that caused the warning letter. Then FDA just throws in the kitchen sink. Yeah, so we do see, like you said, private plaintiffs will just yeah. pull out one, cherry pick one claim out of an FDA warning letter. And it's clearly one of the kitchen sink claims that they threw after just finding one that's yeah. Really yeah. egregious. Yes. And they that's what FDA does. They'll throw in other things. So you you have to learn to read warning letters to figure out too really what is what's the agency trying to get at? What's their real concern? And if you address those concerns, you'll be fine. But the problem is that once you have it then and once they put it in black and white that they think a shark well. I would say is a permissible structural function claim. They don't think is a permissible structural function claim. You're not going to get a closeout letter. They just just not going to do it. So you have to learn to with through your SEO searching, learn to push that warning letter off the <laughs> front two pages. And you mentioned that FDA will scour everything. 
What about social media? Uh, FDA will look at social media, too, and they'll take a look at what people are saying on social media. You've heard me say this. Pictures are worth a thousand words. If somebody is limping and, oh, it hurts and limping around, and all of a sudden, then I started taking this and monkey, how spry I am. Well, <laughs> that's a claim. And, and that's a claim for arthritis. And, and then on top of that, both the FTC and FDA reviews become problematic. And what do you do with those reviews? I, I, my personal opinion is don't do, just let them be housed there. Right. The next thing that people don't understand is that, oh, well, they left a review. I can now use that as a testimonial, but it's a review. Like the minute you pull it out of the review section and put it into the body of copy, that is now a client. Because we don't know where a court will go. Ultimately, if they would agree with what we think is the law, which is that if it's a review and you do nothing and you've done nothing to promote that review, consumers can do what they want. And, and that goes back to when I was a child, mom and dad wrote letters, right? <laughs> and that, now people communicate through reviews and through all those things. That's how they communicate. And that's what the, the, I keep on forgetting the name of the act, but it's the purpose of the act is to allow for people to relieve reviews. Yeah, the, the Communications Decency yeah, Act. Yep, yes. Yep. But so the FDA has said, though, for example, that interaction with reviews or interactions with social media posts, that yeah. you really adopt those statements, that's right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. That's something that people don't say. The minute if somebody posts something and said, God, I had Alzheimer's and this product is great for my Alzheimer's, and you say, oh, I love that, yeah. it is now you've adopted it. You've now interfaced with it. And not only that, you'll have to prove that your product does that from the Federal Trade Commission perspective. So all the same rules apply no matter what channel you're in, whether it's on TV, the web, review, social media, Instagram, TikTok, anything you post, you, you could be potentially liable for. Now, if it's some crazy cat lady out there who's talking about how this product's solved their cat's problems, well, okay, that's they you can't be held responsible for that. However, if you go to her page and like what she's saying, guess what? You've adopted it. But you don't have to go find out what everybody in the world is saying about your product. It's almost impossible. But you are... Got to know what your bloggers are saying about the product because you're paying them and they're getting money. Those bloggers are nothing but advertising. Right. So companies, what I'm hearing you say is companies can get into a lot of trouble if they have a blogger or multiple yep. bloggers out there. Or let's say they've got social me social media people working at their company in the marketing group and they don't know necessarily what they're all of the regulations, yeah. which are clearly very complicated, and they're out there liking things that maybe the FDA would take exception with. Right. So what do you think companies can do? What do I think companies can do? I think companies should put together a really good <laughs> SOP on what you should do and what you shouldn't, uh, do's and don'ts. I think that they need to make, I think that anything a blogger writes should be cleared by the company. I know it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. but Ultimately, you are responsible for what that blogger does. You need to make sure that anybody you're paying money to, that they are doing and they are doing it correctly in order to avoid problems. And then just don't like things. 
I get it. It looks really, really good when you like a post and everything. But the minute you like that post, understand you're no longer just a random post out there. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, I guess, because this is such a a tangled web of regulations, consumers don't understand it. And so they see these claims and they really don't understand what they mean or what they don't mean. I think if you took consumer perception, if everybody said, if everybody saw the FDA symbol that people like to use, because technically, I don't think the government can trademark their symbols. (laughs) I'm, I'm not sure what the rules are around that, but because I'm not a trademark attorney. But if they see that, Oh, they're thinking, oh, wow, FDA must have thought that this is okay. Or if they like people, FDA registered facility, well, all products have to be manufactured in FDA registered facilities. It's It's deceptive to begin with because it's true about everybody. So FDA just doesn't, don't keep them out of it. Right. It's the same as claiming we comply with laws and regulations, (laughs) (laughs) but saying it a different way. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the, the fact matter is, if you did everything your lawyer said to do, you won't sell anything. You know, <laughs> that's it, true of everything, uh, I think. But that's just, you know, there, there's a lot of gray area out there. Try to stay within that gray area. Don't go outside of that gray area. That's probably the best thing I, advice I can give anybody. Because as long as, you can, as long as you can substantiate the claim, dealing with FDA on whether that's a permissible structure function claim is a lot easier than dealing with the Federal Trade Commission and a CID. Right, because the, the FDA's enforcement priorities are a little bit different. Yeah, FDA, FTC. It, one way to put it, FDA generally always gives you a bite at the apple. They'll give you two bites at the apple. But the FTC doesn't really give bites at the apple. There's the Federal Food and Drug Administration, but you also have a lot of the states that are looking at the same thing. So you yeah. really do have to dodge a lot of regulators. Yeah. I think that's a big one of the biggest failures that you have is people don't understand. Everybody's so concentrated on FDA and FTC, but state of California is active. Mm-hmm. St- oh, state of Iowa is active. Pennsylvania is active. Utah is active. Oregon and Washington, these are active states that are pay attention to everything. And that's a problem for everybody else because you've got the FDA taking these extreme views. You've got plaintiff's attorneys, but then there's not a lot of litigation out there. And no. We've seen courts agree with agree with defendants, agree with ex- everything yeah. you're saying here. And It's easier to settle. The problem with litigating a class action lawsuit is if they get past class cert, the cost of going of settling goes up significantly. Tremendous. Yeah. And then you do you really trust a jury? But it goes, it cuts both ways. I mean, the plaintiffs are at risk too. So it cuts both ways. If a plaintiff attorney wants to sell for like $100,000, just pull a figure out. And I'm telling you, it's going to cost us three to $500,000 to litigate it to the end. Well, that $100,000 is probably money well spent. Right. That's really the issue is that if we have good case law out there, then in a lot of ways that stops these, these cases from coming and these plaintiffs from sending the demands. But on the other hand, if we don't, then it emboldens them because nobody's willing to fight. And, and they're also very good at knowing what courts to bring things in. Like California. Like California, yes. So if anybody on the health task force, they're going to bring it in Alameda County because Alameda is going to be about the worst county any company could ever be in. Why is that, Ty? It's because it's extremely liberal. 
the, the judges are extremely liberal and they look, it, it is, it, they, and the state knows that. They're certainly not going to file in Orange County because they'll probably, they know they wouldn't have as much chance winning that case. That's a great point. When you, when you think about it, you were talking really early on about how dietary supplements, you can't make certain claims under FDA and state right. regulations, even if they're true. And then you might have California, the task force file a lawsuit, or you might have a private plaintiff file a lawsuit about a disease claim that's yep. impermissible, albeit substantiated. The question really becomes, where's the harm? And I agree. So, but but what the state will go go doesn't matter whether there's any harm or not because it's an impermissible claim, and, and that's the issue. I mean, once it's an impermissible claim, then you violate state law, and under most state law statute, violation of any regulation, law, or thing is a deceptive trade practice. That's another thing that's hard, I think, to wrap people's head around under most state laws. The minute you make it, you violate a state law, you're now in deceptive. They don't have to even show intent. Right. They just have to prove to the judge that that's a impermissible disease claim. And that's why this is such a tangled, tangled area. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Todd, for your thoughts on marketing FDA-regulated products. You can read more from Todd on the topic in our Advertising Law Toolkit. It's available at venable.com slash adlawtoolkit. Please join us next week when my co-host Len Gordon and I will be talking about negative option and continuity marketing. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. Thanks for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. <laughs>